So, more or less continuing from earlier today, we'll see if we can unravel the mystery of what meditation is and about what it's about. So, first of all, just the, the meaning of some words so that we're entirely clear. Um, samadhi means concentration. And samatha means, in English, serenity, or sometimes it's translated as calm abiding. And so, what we mean by samatha is not just any kind of serenity, but a very, a very specific uh, state of concentration and mindful awareness that has been cultivated. So, if we practice samadhi, the practice of samadhi will culminate in samatha. It will reach its final fullness and perfection in samatha. So, this particular state that is called samatha, there is effortless concentration. It is said that the the mind is malleable and wieldy. It means that the meditator can place their attention on anything that they choose, and it will rest there for so long as they choose to have it remain there. And it means that they can focus their attention either very narrowly and single-pointedly or in a very broad way. Now, the second aspect of samatha is a very high degree of mindful awareness. Very, uh, the mind is very alert, very aware, takes in everything with great clarity and precision and vividness. There is a word, sati, and sati refers to this mindful awareness. And this mindful awareness can be applied to any kind of object of attention or any kind of object of consciousness. When it is applied to the mind itself, it's called satisampajana, or translated into English, (coughs) the closest meaning to the Tibetan in English is clear comprehension. But I think the best way to understand it is to translate it as introspective awareness because it means that this mindful awareness is aware of the mind itself in the present moment. What the mind is doing in the present moment, what is happening with the mind in the present moment. So, samadhi is concentration and sati is mindful awareness. 
And when the development of concentration and mindful awareness reach their perfection, then it's the state called samatha. Okay? So that's that's basically what samatha is. But in samatha, there is something more than just very good concentration and very strong mindful awareness. The mind is also in a state of joy. And what we mean by a, a mental state of joy, it means that the mind has this flavor of seeing of seeing the beauty in things, of seeing the good in things, of seeing uh, the wonderful nature of things. So that a person who has a joyful mind, it is uh, this joy that is present in samatha is arrived at through meditation and is unique in that way. But it is not different from ordinary joy. Uh, when things happen that uh, are beneficial to us or fulfill our deepest wishes and things like that, we have a mind that is in a state of joy. And a mind that's in a state of joy tends to notice the good and the beautiful and the happy and to disregard the, the ugly, the unpleasant, uh, the sorrowful. And in any particular thing that the mind happens to notice, in a state of joy, if the thing is has the quality of pleasantness associated with it, it's experienced as very pleasant. If it has a quality of, of neutrality or near neutrality to it, the mind still perceives it as having something of the essence of, of pleasantness to it. If something has the quality of unpleasantness to it, the mind tends to see it as not so unpleasant. Now, you, you all have all enjoyed, you know what the state of joy is. You're a very happy, good mood, right? And that's the state of joy. And you go out in the world and you see that this is beautiful and that's wonderful and this person is, is a very nice person and this is, your mind is oriented, that it picks out things like that and then whatever comes to it, it sees us with this, it sees things with this bias towards uh, happiness. It's exactly the opposite of uh, the mental state of, uh, of sadness or sorrow. In a state of, of great unhappiness, we, nothing, nothing looks wonderful. Nothing looks very good. Even those things that are pleasurable have lost their flavor of pleasantness. Right? They're more neutral than they are uh, pleasant. And the things that are unpleasant, of course, their unpleasantness is greatly magnified. So that's what we mean by joy. So through meditation and the unification of the mind, the mind, the natural state of the mind seems to be one of joy. And so at Samatha, there is this state of joy that's present. And so naturally the mind tends to be somewhat happy. There is also... So we have three factors now. We have concentration, mindful awareness, and we have uh, the state, uh, mental state of joy. There is also a profound tranquility. 
So this joy is not an excited, exuberant kind of joy. It's just, it is just the flavor of the mind. It's the orientation of the mind, of how, how it uh, experiences. And then finally, there is equanimity. Equanimity is strong in samatha. And equanimity means that there is uh, little or no tendency to grasp after or chase after the pleasant or to reject and push away and resist the unpleasant. Everything is just accepted as it is, as it comes. And so uh, a person in the state, uh, in a state of samatha, uh, if they're not, if they don't happen to be sitting, if they happen to be uh, moving around with their eyes opening, uh, open and, and experiencing things, their mind can be used very effectively because anything they attend to or the mind is fully settled on because of their mindful awareness. They, they know it uh, in, a, in a very full and complete and vivid way. They can investigate it thoroughly. And their mind is not easily perturbed because of the equanimity which minimizes or eliminates any sort of grasping or rejection and because of the tranquility that provides a sense of peacefulness, and because of the joy which tends to perceive everything in a more positive light. It's a, the, this mind is, is not very easily perturbed by things. So, this is samatha. It has these five qualities. And also there is something called the seven factors of enlightenment. And... These five qualities of samatha are five of the seven factors of enlightenment. Concentration, mindful awareness, joy, tranquility, and equanimity. The other two factors of enlightenment are investigation and effort or energy. And so we say that this samatha is the perfect basis for practicing vipassana. And you can see that. So if we if, if a mind in a state of uh, vipassana is then used for the investigation of reality for the sake of attaining insight, it's the mind that's perfectly suited to that because anything the mind is focused on that uh, has, has this characteristic of, of uh, concentration and mindfulness. And it can, it can even investigate uh, the... Uh, aspects of reality to which we're trying to obtain insight, which the mind normally wants to reject to some degree. Impermanence, selflessness, and uh, the dissatisfaction that permeates all phenomenal experience, these are not things that the mind is, is eager to embrace. Right? It's, uh, the mind can shy away from these and not easily. But so you can see that with these five factors, it, it's very a very good mind for practicing vipassana. And of course, all you need to do is to add the last two, the uh, the energy and the investigation to to focus uh, now on the practice of vipassana is to actively investigate your reality as it uh, unfolds. 
Vipassana means insight. It means special insight. And uh, although there are a variety of things that are revealed to understanding, when we begin to investigate carefully, the most important insights of them all in terms of this particular path to awakening are insights into the uh, what are called the three characteristics of reality or of phenomenal experience or of, uh, of human uh, of all human uh, uh, experience and these are impermanence the second one is emptiness and in the Theravada, the emphasis is put on the emptiness of the self. In the Mahayana, the emptiness both of phenomena and the self are recognized. But it's the same thing in either case. It's the it's emptiness. And then the third is unsatisfactoriness. That, that all of this experience and all of these formations that we engage in and pursue are doomed to uh, lead to an unsatisfactory experience and uh, it is uh, suffering is uh, the essence of unsatisfactoriness. So these are these three characteristics, deeply understanding these is the purpose of Vipassana. And remember the meaning is special insight. And so, Um, the vipassana that we want to achieve is a very direct experience and understanding of each of these. Not just an intellectual understanding, but a direct experience of impermanence and of selflessness and of unsatisfactoriness. Now, where the confusion comes in in meditation is that you will see a meditation described as this is vipassana meditation. Or there will be another practice and it will be described as this is samatha practice. Or sometimes it's said that this is samadhi practice. And so, by these labels... It might, it might lead us to believe that, that vipassana practice and samatha practice are different in some way. And then, of course, there are, are teachers and there are uh, teachings, uh, and these go back to the Visuddhimagga, a commentary on the sutras that it is not from the Buddha, but is from uh, over a thousand years after the Buddha. And it's a very wonderful document. It's a very wonderful compilation of the teachings of the masters that uh, uh, one particular person, Buddha Gosa, was able to bring together and to put into one volume. But when he wrote this book, he has a huge section uh, just about the biggest part of this very, very large volume 
on samatha meditation, and it is completely separate from another very large part on vipassana meditation. And so this this being passed down has created sort of a tradition of regarding samatha and vipassana as being somehow more separate than they are. Um, And because, too, um, in the late 1900s, they developed in Southeast Asia amongst the forest tradition monks a practice that uh, ignored the cultivation of concentration and uh, focused primarily on the development of insight. And it was referred to as insight meditation. And because samatha wasn't cultivated first, it was called dry vipassana, as in dry without the moisture of, uh, of the samatha. And so, this is why in, in many uh, in many of the uh, books on meditation, and if you go to visit meditation teachers and things like that, they will speak in a way that tends to distinguish these two as as being two different practices. But if we go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, there was no such distinction made in terms of the practice. The practice that he speaks of, it was all meditation practice, and it was all practice designed to uh, lead to samatha and to the the, uh, fixed states of concentration called jhanas, which I talked to you about before, and to lead to insight or vipassana. And in those teachings, there's not this distinction made as to different methods. But, now when we look at the meanings of the word though, vipassana is an insight. It's a result of practice. It's one of the results of practice. And samatha is also a result of practice, but even more it's a particular degree of development of the, uh, of the practice. It's that full development of concentration and mindful awareness. If we go back to the uh, the other words I mentioned, samadha, uh, samadhi, and sati. Samadhi means concentration, and sati means mindful awareness. So there's also been a tendency to associate concentration by itself with samatha, and this is actually inaccurate, and to associate sati by itself with vipassana, and this is actually impossible. <laughs> okay? Now, you can have concentration without sati. You can have concentration without mindful awareness. But it leads to a, uh, like a trance-like state where there is no clarity of mind that can do any use, anything that's of any useful value in terms of gaining vipassana. So to this extent, this is something uh, to enter into a very pleasant 
but dull trance-like state of single point of concentration is not particularly uh, desirable and useful. And indeed, in the sutras, the Buddha did warn against this. He did very explicitly say that there is this kind of concentration which is unwholesome and of no value and that uh, the bhikkhu should be aware of it. Unfortunately, sometimes that particular reference in the sutras is raised and, and used to defend the point of view that, that all concentration practice and all samatha practice is somehow dangerous and undesirable and that only the dry vipassana practice is the only way that a person should proceed to achieve awakening. And, and this is, that, that's a distortion. Now, samatha has both the qualities of concentration and mindful awareness. And this is how they should be developed any time they're developed together. There's the possibility of a mistake of developing samadhi without sati, concentration without mindful awareness. You can't make the other mistake, though. You can't really develop mindfulness without concentration. I mean, try to picture that. How are you going to develop strong mindful awareness with a mind that won't stay still and is constantly going all over the place? It just, it does, it, it can't happen. Okay? So, do, do you see the relationship between these different things here? These different ideas? Now, now let me talk to you a little bit about the dry vipassana practice. And the Mahasi method is an example of that. And the, the method of Ubakin, which is what uh, the Gawenka schools teach, it's, uh, it's pretty dry. You could call it slightly damp, <laughs> slightly moist, but largely dry. <laughs> In the sense that there's, samatha is not developed. There is a little bit of time spent on developing concentration, which is very, very good. But the reason that the Ubakin method and the method that Goenka teaches still belongs to the group of practices that we call dry vipassana is because it's without samadhi. I mean, without samatha. Sorry. It's without samatha. It has some samadhi, but not to the point of samatha. Okay? So that's the distinction. Um, and there are, uh, there are some other dry vipassana practices that are, are less well known. But let us look at one of these practices in particular, and I was asked today about what Mahasi practice and what it consists in. This is a very, very powerful practice, although it doesn't work for everyone and it does have certain uh, problems associated with it. But it is a very powerful and very useful practice. And what makes it dry vipassana is that the the uh, instructor directs the yogi in a way that right from the very outset the main thing that they're doing is observing phenomena mindfully so that insights will begin to arise and that's what makes it dry vipassana. It's not preceded by the development of, of samatha and in the case of the Mahasi practice 
uh, unlike the Goenka practice, it's not even preceded by a period of just cultivating simple concentration by itself to help in steadying the mind. So what this means in the practice is that that you're actually developing uh, samadhi and sati at the same time, but all of the emphasis is on the noticing of phenomena rather than the, the cultivating of the concentration. So the cultivation of concentration has to sort of develop by itself without any detailed instruction. But that does remain very much a part of the process. Um, let me just point out something else here. There is the basis for this. The basis for this dry vipassana practice is one teaching that the Buddha gave in the sutras where he said that a yogi could uh, first do samatha followed by vipassana. Or he could do vipassana followed by samatha or he could develop both of them in tandem which meant either a practice that developed both at the same time, that worked towards both goals at the same time. Or he could spend some time doing practice which was primarily intended to achieve samatha, and then at other times do a practice that was primarily intended to lead to insights into phenomena. And so... um, that, that is the basis in the scripture for, the, for there being a dry vipassana practice so that um, that school of thought and those teachers can point to that teaching and say, see, this was actually uh, pointed out by the Buddha himself. And a little bit of uh, history behind that that I'm not totally sure of the accuracy of but the development of this dry vipassana school um, the quality of meditation in Southeast Asian Buddhism, in Theravadan Buddhism, had declined very, very seriously over a number of centuries. <coughs> and as I understood it, not only were there many monks who no longer made any attempt to meditate, but very often the meditation they did was one that tended to lead to Uh, states of dullness rather than states of brilliant mental clarity leading to insight. And so in that regard, meditation practice in the Theravadan tradition in Southeast Asia had been in some sort of a decline for some time. The forest tradition, uh, who, uh, you know, and, and also to honestly describe the situation of Theravadan Buddhism is there were many monks living very, very comfortably in monasteries, uh, supported by the, the Buddhist population, who would come to them and hear teachings. And uh, but uh, monasteries acquired great wealth, and they competed with each other for sponsors and benefactors, and and to uh, create libraries and to build nice buildings and to be able to. Uh, house a larger number of monks so that my monastery is bigger than your monastery kind of thing. Because, you know, I mean, obviously in uh, a situation in, in a culture where uh, 
the uh, the monasteries are, are large and numerous. They 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 play an important role in the political and cultural life uh, of our country, and so human nature being what it is, even monastics are inclined to become engaged in that. So anyway, we have a situation where not so much meditation was being done, and in many cases in the monasteries the meditation was not a high quality. But at the same time, in these uh, Theravadan countries, there were groups of bhikkhus who declined to live in the ease and comfort of the monasteries, and they preferred to travel about, staying in, in monasteries only during uh, uh, the rainy season retreats, and uh, the rest of the time meditating in the forests and in the mountains and things like this. And they were they were motivated to follow as closely as possible the original teachings of the Buddha, and they held to that in terms of their meditation practice as well. And so they took meditation much more seriously, and it was clear to them that the purpose of meditation was to achieve the insights and to achieve uh, enlightenment. This is where the dry vipassana practice uh, arose, was amongst uh, these forest monks rather than in the monasteries. But then in uh, about the, uh, the early middle part of the 20th century, this, uh, this vipassana tradition was brought back into the monasteries. And Mahasi Sayadaw systematized it and wrote about it and taught it and spread it very, very widely. And it fairly quickly spread to all it spread all over Southeast Asia. Um, and it was very successful. Even the, part of the tradition in, in the Theravadan countries is that lay people often will uh, take our ordination and take robes for uh, some period of three months or six months or a year or two years or something like that. And when they did that, and when they engaged in this practice, many of them were achieving uh, uh, stream entry and the higher paths. And, of course, that's the reason why it swept through the Theravadan countries and became very popular. Um, and, and, of course, the, the monastics began to take it up as a serious practice as well, for the same reason. So, you know, it, it comes, it comes uh, with a good history behind it, this method. Um, it was the predominant method that uh, young Europeans and Americans in the uh, 60s and 70s, when they went to Asia and went visited these monasteries, they learned the Vipassana methods, and they brought them back. And so we find we find them Spirit Rock and uh, IMS and all of these other places that are, are teaching this Vipassana and, and have been teaching it for a long time. <clears throat> Although you will find that what's taught at IMS and what's taught at Spirit Rock is not the same Vipassana that Mahasi taught and the Upandita teaches. And those of you that have gone to retreats in the Upandita tradition will notice it's quite a bit, it's completely different really than going to Spirit Rock. It's almost, it's hard to believe that it's, uh, it comes out of the same tradition, right? Yeah, That's yeah. right. It's just, it's, it has changed so much. <clears throat> but anyway, 
and I I just have to um, reserve judgment about the changes that have been made to that practice in this country, other than to say, you know, that I, when I say that I first began teaching meditation because I found so many people that have been practicing for a long time and had really achieved very little progress, many of them have been practicing in that method, you know, in that way. So, <clears throat> but anyway, I want to go back to speaking about the Mahasi method as, we, as he uh, as he developed it and he taught it and as it swept through the Theravadan countries and became the predominant method that in its very forms comes back to us in the present time. <clears throat> it follows very closely uh, a system laid out in the Visuddhi Bhaga. And the method, the method is fairly simple. The meditation object is the rise and fall of the abdomen with the breath. Very similar to what we're doing with the sensations of the nose. And the other essential ingredient of the method is the noting. Everything is noted. There is a verbal label to everything. So, when you put your attention on the abdomen, you note the rising and you note the falling. You note the rising and you note the falling. And when a thought comes, you note thinking, thinking. Or when there's a sound, hearing, hearing. Or, and so on and so on. Whatever comes up, you note it. And you continue that noting as, uh, as you develop in the practice. Now, obviously what will happen to somebody who sits down and puts their attention on their abdomen instead of their nose and does the same thing that we're doing uh, and the only thing they're doing different is attaching labels to it, they're going to have exactly the same problem. They're going to forget what they're doing and their mind's going to wander. And then after five minutes or so, they remember, oh, I'm supposed to be watching the rise and fall of my abdomen. Oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah. thinking, thinking. Oh, okay, now, rising, falling, rising, falling. Right? Is, is that not how it is? If you, you know. And over and over again, the yogi's mind does the same thing. It watches the rise and fall for a little while, and then it gets distracted, and then goes all over the place, and then the yogi finds it, and brings it back. And, and very familiar. And eventually, after bringing the attention back over and over and over again, uh, the mind will tend to forget not so easily and wander less. But this is never pointed out specifically in the teaching. And there aren't the kind of little tips given along the way that you know as to how to help make this uh, happen more quickly. All of the things that, that I have taught you and all the things that uh, all of the steps that are appropriate to these ten stages of samatha development can be applied precisely to the Mahasi method. You know, that there's, there's really no difference. Uh, except that you're always going to put a label on things. And so after a while, the mind ceases to wander so much and you can stay with the rising and falling. But there's sounds and there's pains, uh, and there's thoughts. And so, 
in the same way, when you realize that a thought has uh, begun to occupy your, your attention in a strong way, you say, thinking, thinking, which actually has a very strong effect of making the thought stop. And, but in this method, too, we use a little, some little tricks that are similar to that to do the same thing. And then you bring, then then you refocus on on the rising and falling, and as you uh, and, and the process of doing this, as you do it long enough, concentration develops. Uh, you you cease to have mind wandering. Uh, the the mind becomes much less easily distracted by these other thoughts, and there's only the reasonably strong thoughts and the reasonably strong sounds and other things that uh, uh, are significant enough that you label them rather than labeling the rise and fall. And then at this stage in the practice, the instruction is to notice, and this will sound familiar to notice the sensations of, of the rise and fall very clearly, noticing specifically the beginning and the ending of the rising and falling, and also noticing the other sensations, noticing at the beginning of the rise, there is uh, uh, some feeling of pressure, and then there's a feeling of movement, and a feeling of expansion, and then a feeling of slowing down, and then a feeling of stopping, and then maybe a little feeling of elastic recoil as the as the in breath ends, and then a brief pause, and then a soft feeling as the abdomen begins to to collapse, and so on and so forth. And so, in the Mahasi method you're asked to do the same things you are here, which is to increase the power of your mindfulness by noticing in more detail the sensations that are occurring in association with the rising and falling. And same thing in the walking meditation asked. It's, it's exactly the same as the slow walking meditation that I ask you to do. And for the same thing. So to say, you know, it, it, it is something that you might occasionally hear somebody say that uh, in doing this kind of vipassana practice or doing the, uh, the Mahasi method, that the yogi is not trying to develop concentration, but you just have to scratch your head and say, "Well, what do they call it then? You know, if that's not concentration, that is exactly concentration." And you have to develop. And this is what I said before: you cannot develop sati, mindful awareness, by itself. You have to develop concentration with it. It just can't go by itself. You can you you can develop concentration without sati and sink into dullness. And that's one of the things we guard against. But you can't really develop sati by itself. So really when we say dry vipassana, it is dry because there is no samatha, but we are we are developing concentration as we go along. And in the Mahasi method, the yogi does develop samatha. And the yogi actually goes through the same stages that you do if you're deliberately uh, developing samatha. You see, there is, uh, there is a particular stage in uh, the, uh, as it's described in the Visuddhimagga, which the Mahasi method is based on. And it's called purification by knowledge of what is and is not the path. Fancy name. <laughs> purification by knowledge of what is and is not the path. 
And what it refers to specifically is in this stage, certain things will arise that are very exciting and pleasing to the yogi, but which are not the path. And they're they're definitely not the path of, of Mahasi practice. What are those things? They are meditative joy, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, these things sound familiar. <laughs> now this is not samatha. What this corresponds to is uh, this, this corresponds to uh, what arises uh, uh, briefly off and on in the seventh stage and it also uh, and, and to what arises more consistently in the eighth stage of the practice uh, that uh, in the eighth stage of the development of concentration that I have described to you. It is exactly the same thing. And in fact, the Mahasi Yogi, who is at the stage called uh, the knowledge of what is and is not the path, is basically in that level of concentration. That's where they are at. That's where they've come to. And what they will experience is their body will be very still. Their concentration will be very good. So part of this is called the early stage of, of the knowledge of arising and passing away because the mind can very easily follow the arising and passing away of the rise and fall, of the sensations that make up the rise and fall, of the distractions like the sounds and the thoughts and so forth, you know, because the yogi has good concentration and a fairly unified mind. And they will the yogi then feels as though their body is very their body is very comfortable, may feel very light, may even feel empty. And often they have feeling of, as though there's an energy passing through the body. And it's not unusual for the Mahasi yogi to find that their body, that there's jerks and twitches and jumps, or their body rocks back and forth, or begins to go around in circles, and things like that. And then, at some point, they will have the very pleasant sensation pervade their body and the strong sense of joy arise and they become very excited. And they will feel like they have strong insight into the nature of the practice. And uh, if they don't know anything at all about samatha, and they didn't know anything about these, this is the first time they've happened to them. Here I am. I've been meditating for for five weeks now, you know, and I've been through all this pain and everything, and now all of a sudden my body feels wonderful, there's this joy, there's this lightness, there's this energy. I'm like, this is it, I'm enlightened. <laughs> and that's, that's what people think, yeah. That's, you can understand that. If nobody told you about this, you know, said it was, this is... But the teachers do. They'll tell you in a talk. When this happens, you know, that's not it. That's not the path. And that's what this stage means. The purification by knowledge of what is and is not packed is getting to that stage of concentration, having these wonderful experiences, thinking that this this must be it, I must be enlightened now, and then realizing that no, it's not. What the meditation teacher teaches at this stage, when the student comes to the interview and says, you know, I, I have all this joy, I have all this happiness, you know, you know. then the, the teacher says, ignore that. You, you continue the noting. 
Note more often. Note more, note more often, right? And when the yogi goes back and notes more often, sure enough what will happen is the joy and the happiness will go away. And they'll go back to the state of concentration, really the one that corresponds to stage seven, where the mind is somewhat vulnerable to wandering, but it's still very clear, and now they're observing they're observing the rise and fall, and they're observing the arising and passing away. These are two different things. A little bit confusing sometimes. The rise of the abdomen, the fall of the abdomen, but and the arising and the passing away. Well, the arising is the arising of anything that's in consciousness, and the passing away is the passing away of the same. So the uh, there's an arising and a passing away to the rise, and an arising and passing away to the fall. Or actually, in this stage, the yogi's concentration is very good. So there's an arising and passing away to the beginning of the rise, and arising and passing away to the middle of the rise, and arising and passing away to the end of the rise. But this is the state of the yogi's concentration now. He's gotten, according to the Mahasi method, he has now succeeded in overcoming the corruptions of insight, which the this is this is how the uh, the joy and happiness and so forth are regarded in this method as corruptions uh, or defilements, and they're only re- they're only seen that way because of the fact that that the uh, well for two reasons one is that the the uh, yogi can mistake them for the goal and cease to practice the mindfulness diligently. And the other thing, in terms of this particular path, the yogi has to remain really without that, uh, at least in the way that it's traditionally done. The yogi has to be remain open to a lot of suffering. And these these are defilements of, of insight in the sense that it's difficult to experience that kind of suffering when you have that much uh, joy and tranquility and equanimity. So to follow this method properly, and it works really well, uh, you know, this is, I, I see this as a problem with the method, because I've seen people that they get to this point, and the retreat's over and they go home, and their life is a disaster because, you know, uh, I, well, not the, to the point I haven't described yet. But it's called the dukkha jnanas, or the knowledges of suffering. That's what comes next. Anyway, what happens is they are then, having gotten over the defilements, they have an experience of this very clear uh, mindful awareness and good concentration corresponding to stage seven in the development of concentration. And so now they can observe the rising and passing away of phenomena very, very clearly. And they do this for a long, long time. And and the mind becomes sharper and clearer, and the details of that which they are able to observe becomes more and more refined. And so they're watching rising and passing away very, very quickly of all of the different phenomena. This is a very... This this is a very... uh, uh, satisfying stage in the practice for the yogi because uh, the concentration is good and the mindfulness is good and the encouragement from the teacher is very strong. What happens though is in the next stage which is called the knowledge of dissolution. The yogi 
the mind naturally starts to gravitate to seeing the passing away of everything. Not, no longer seeing the arising, no longer seeing anything except the passing away. And it's like everything is just disappearing, passing away, passing away, passing away, passing away. And this is one form of the direct experience of impermanence. There's several different ways that you can experience impermanence, but this is definitely a very powerful direct experience of impermanence. Everything, everything that the mind uh, that arises in the mind is seen to be passing away, passing away, passing away. The most important part about this is that you see, you see the sensations passing away but you also see the consciousness that knows the sensations pass away. And you know how closely we are attached to our, our mind as self and consciousness as self. And so what has the real impact on the yogi is that, that and, and this is something that can only happen in this kind of practice where you're doing all of this noting. You're, you're, uh, at this point, it's happening so rapidly that you're no longer noting with a verbal label because that's too cumbersome. You're only occasionally noting with a verbal label. But you are identifying conceptually everything that you see. So your mind experiences a sensation and then experiences the verbal label that goes along with it and then experiences the next sensation and... Uh, the, it's rupa, nama, rupa, nama, rupa, nama, and this is going on for hours, right? And then when you come to the passing away, the rupa is passing away, and so is the nama passing away. So you're not only seeing uh, sense objects and mind objects passing away, but you're seeing the consciousness that knows them passing away. And so this is insight into impermanence, and it's insight into impermanence of the consciousness itself. So that leads into the dukkha jnanas. The yogi has the feeling that everything that he previously clung to, and that's the right word too, this is clinging, the essence of clinging, everything he clung to is now unstable. The ground's fallen out beneath him and, and there is, is nothing but that which passes away. And so there's the, the dukkha jnanas that are called the, the knowledge of terror, the knowledge of misery, and the knowledge of disgust that arise. What happens with no, no discursive thought, no thought taking place, just being trapped in this place of meditating where absolutely everything you experience is experienced as passing away, including the, 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 uh, the mind that knows these objects, is a profound realization uh, of uh, selflessness and of impermanence. And then the mind understands that that only suffering can come from clinging to the appearance of things as permanent, and only suffering can come from clinging to the appearance of things as self. And so this, the profound insights are developed in the mind of the yogi. In these, in these uh, stages of knowledge of uh, uh, terror, misery, and disgust, as they're called, now this is followed by a stage that's called the knowledge of reobservation. So, uh, or that's actually preceded by uh, 
it's called the knowledge of determination. If the yogi stays with it, eventually he breaks through this and realizes that the, my only hope, my only possible hope, is to continue to practice. And, and hopefully everything that they've said is true. And that there is, uh, there is a result that will liberate me from this hellish state of, of impermanence and selflessness and, and, and suffering. So the knowledge of determination and then the knowledge of reobservation, where this is all this all um, gels very clearly for the yogi. Now this is followed by another stage that's called the uh, knowledge of equanimity towards formation, which is exactly the same as samatha. It is the tenth stage that's described in the practice. There is now tranquility. There's very, very strong effortless concentration, very strong mindfulness, uh, tranquility and equanimity. The yogi is in a state of samatha, and the yogi also has a clear perception of the three characteristics. This is the yogi that's ready to move to the next stage, and, and the following stages are the attainment of the path and, and fruition, the experience of nirvana. But that comes from samatha. So, in the Mahasi method, you can see that the yogi has practiced vipassana before samatha. But the enlightenment doesn't happen until after the samatha. And the Buddha says this in many, many different sutras, that there is no enlightenment without insight and without concentration, without samatha. And this is how it evolves in that method. It's a very good, it's a very powerful method. But it's only one of many methods. It's uh, uh, yeah, that's that's about as much as I need to say, I think, about that. Now we can contrast that with another approach. Samatha before Vipassana. Now, and remember, the Mahasi method is not Vipassana. It's one method that leads to Vipassana. And there are hundreds of different practices that lead to Vipassana. Maybe more than hundreds, I don't know. But there are hundreds of different practices. So Samatha before Vipassana would be a yogi who develops concentration to the point of Samatha. And then, using Samatha as the access to insight, then commences to practice Vipassana, and it's pre- it can be predicted that they will succeed very quickly in gaining insight. But you see the difference between Vipassana before Samatha and Samatha before Vipassana. They're really not so different. And then, of course, the third alternative, which is to practice Samatha and Vipassana in tandem means that while you're developing concentration and working towards samatha, that at the same time you are cultivating insights. And that's the next thing that we can talk about, is the insights and how they can be cultivated while while you're developing samatha. And of course the advantage of this is that practicing samatha uh, and vipassana 
at the same time is that any time from the beginning of samatha practice you can uh, you can have temporary periods where you enjoy very strong concentration even to the level of samatha and so if you're practicing vipassana at the same time you've increased the chances the the probability that you might indeed uh, complete the process of path attainment somewhat sooner in any case, you're developing them together. Uh, you have to develop them both anyway. So <laughs> they support each other too. As as uh, as understanding through insight develops, uh, uh, so it becomes easier to train the mind because uh, there is less resistance uh, of the mind and there's less wrong view of the nature of the mind and the nature of the self. So that's other ways that it's beneficial. But uh, for a person who is has a natural inclination to develop samatha quickly and easily, they're probably best to develop samatha and then focus on vipassana afterwards. The other thing about samatha and vipassana together is that it requires a lot of pointing out and direction along the way. And uh, there is no way to uh, uh, underestimate the benefit of having continuous regular contact with a teacher for, uh, for something like that. So if you could do a three-month retreat, seeing a teacher every day or every second day or something like that, to develop sanatana and pasana together is very, very powerful and effective way to proceed. Yes? Uh, the difference between Vipassana and Samatha, mm-hmm. is it uh, we don't need to uh, remind myself a lot of time about the uh, impermanent uh, emptiness and equality and unsatisfied and you stay this situation all the time? And the difference between you mean if you're if you're not developing vipassana, you just you forget about those things. No, no, no. Oh, I didn't understand. Uh, do you remember last time our in, uh, I interview with you? Yes. I tell you, uh, I have to remind myself a mm-hmm. lot of time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, the difference between vipassana and samatha is that uh, we don't need to remind it immediately. We know it and do it. Uh, well, you have you have to remind yourself of of the characteristics of impermanence and selflessness and, and unsatisfactoriness until you have had a, a direct experience of them. Now, if you were doing samatha practice only and you were going to do vipassana later on, then you don't need to you don't need to concern with reminding yourself of it. But if you want to do both together. <coughs> then you want to keep cultivating that continuous awareness of, uh, uh, of the characteristic, of the insights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just one, because I know everybody's got one. Uh, when you're doing samatha with pasna in tandem, do you recommend doing them in, during different 
sets and I'm having trouble picturing how you would do them at the same time. Uh, keep in mind that when I'm saying you're doing some samatha and vipassana at the same time, I'm not saying do Mahasi practices. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said that there's many, many different ways of doing samatha practice, or doing vipassana practice. And Mahasi is only one, and it's one that ignores the samatha aspect and just lets it develop by itself. And if you're going to do Mahasi practice, it's probably best to do, just do very strict Mahasi practice because that's what seems to work best in that practice. But the way that you do them, there's, you can do them in tandem in, in two ways. You can do any of the various kinds of mindfulness practices uh, alternating with uh, samatha uh, or you can uh, allow in different sits you mean? In, in different sits or, and it's not just sits too you can practice you can practice vipassana in your daily life and practice samatha when you sit oh I see what you're saying yeah but you could also do do them in in different sits too when once your concentration has become strong enough uh, then you can do uh, the, the, you can do certain vipassana practices. Now, one way of doing vipassana, when your concentration is strong enough that you can move it from object to object and, and investigate the arising and passing away of objects. And when I say move it from object to object, I mean uh, move it from the piece of cake to your awareness of the mind's reaction to the piece of cake, to an awareness of the thoughts that arise as to how I can get the piece of cake, that kind of thing. Right, so you're not remaining fixed on one thing, but you're following things that are of significance, investigating them. And you have to have enough concentration to do that. So that's one way of doing vipassana. Uh, And you can do that in sitting practice, allowing different uh, thought processes and, and uh, uh, emotional states and things like this to arise and investigating them as we do. Or you can do this, you can cultivate this mindful awareness and practice it in your daily life, which in which it is very, very effective and powerful. Another sort of general category of ways of doing vipassana as a sitting practice is when you are able to relax and open the mind, the awareness up and experience the spacious mind and just observe the rising and passing away of whatever comes through it from a still point. And in, that's a very powerful sitting practice to do. Um, and you know, when your mind is, is clear and strong enough, you can do it in other circumstances as well. As well. But... Um, of course, every vipassana practice claims to be based in the Satipatthana Sutra, the, the four uh, applications of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, and most most teachers of the different method claim that their method is the only one that really follows the Satipatthana Sutra, <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting, but. My interpretation of uh, 
the Satipatthana Sutra is that at least one of the ways that it's intended to be used and can be used very powerfully is in your daily life. That as you're developing samatha and as you're enjoying greater powers of concentration and mindful awareness, you apply this mindful awareness in your daily life to the continuous observation of the body, of the feelings, of the mental states, and of understanding the uh, mental uh, objects and intentions that arise in terms of the Dharma. So what this, what this would look like is cultivating, being continuously aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it, and what are the motivations behind what you're doing. Um, the practice of virtue is uh, a, 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 the perfection of virtue and the perfection of generosity and perfection of patience are all vipassana practices. They will all lead to, to insight. Because you're examining, in order to do those practices, you have to examine uh, the world of phenomena and you have to examine the mind's reaction to it. And sooner or later you begin to notice the, the key things that uh, make up these insights. So, now, back to, let me go back to the insights here. And for insight to develop, there requires uh, what's called right view. Not to say that you can't develop insight without first developing right view or uh, purification of view. But everything becomes dramatically simpler when you develop right view. And uh, there are this purification of view. And that is to understand that you, as an individual, are a series of conscious experiences. To stop viewing, uh, to, to let go of the view that there is a universe of self-existent objects and there is a self-existent person here in the middle of it, uh, but to discard that as a fabrication of the mind and recognize that from the time you were born, there was a continuous unfolding of a sequence of conscious experiences. And that's what you are. In each of these conscious experience, experiences, there have been what are called the, the five aggregates or the five skandhas. In each conscious experience, there are the sensations, uh, the objects of consciousness. There are some perceptions, there are some feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, there are certain mental formations, and there is consciousness. And these are constantly changing, moment to moment to moment. Each, uh, in each moment there's a particular set of sensations, feeling, mental formations present. And consciousness is taking certain aspects as objects 
And that changes. In the next moment, of course, the sensations have changed. They may have changed grossly or just subtly, but they've changed. The feelings change. The the operable mental formations have changed, and consciousness has tended to move from one thing to another. You're primarily aware of the sensation, then you're primarily aware of the perception. Then you may be primarily aware of the feeling that arises. Then you may be primarily aware of... Uh, intention that arises as a result of, uh, of the feeling and, and craving. So consciousness is, is changing from I consciousness to mind consciousness to, you know, the, the consciousness is always changing. The sense everything's changed. Can you see that? And purification of view is to realize that your whole life is a series of experiences consisting of uh, nama rupa or mentality and materiality except that materiality consists of nothing but sensation you actually have there is no materiality in any of your sen- uh, conscious experiences there's only sensation and the mental formations by which you uh, describe and explain the sensation so this is purification of you you know I was trying to point that out point you towards that in the directed meditation yesterday, do you notice that there's only sensation? Sensation, mental formations, feelings, and consciousness, and you know, this is, uh, and perception, that this is all there is. So if you, uh, once, once you, uh, once you understand this, this is called the knowledge of discerning nama and rupa, the knowledge of discerning, uh, uh, body and mind. But it's, it, it, what it's really called is the purification of view. Now, viewing your life, your existence, uh, and the universe in these terms makes it much, much easier, much more quickly can you penetrate to the insights. When you're looking at the world the way we normally do, the understanding of impermanence is, ah, well, sort of. The understanding of selflessness is, um, I guess if you say so. <laughs> right? And the understanding of, uh, of, of suffering is, yeah, it sure does seem that way, but I, I still can't help trying to get, get what I want and avoid what I don't want. But when you change from the ordinary way of seeing things and you achieve the purification of view, which is the first step in the insight process, then you now have a way of looking at yourself and reality and experience which will begin to be quite revealing. Because then you can start to see the objects of consciousness as they arise and pass away, and you see a number number of things about them immediately. First of all, I have to say that the next stage in the process is called the purification by overcoming doubt. You have, first of all, before you jump into the uh, the insights, you have to satisfy yourself that that this is really legitimate. You know that this is really true. It's always been this way. It always will be this way. That this view actually it's not some specialized way of looking at things while you're in the meditation hall, but this is the way things always are, all of the time, always have, and always will be. 
You have to overcome that doubt in order for the insights that you have to carry the weight that they need. Okay, so you have to spend some time just, you know, just observing, just observing this, just observing that, indeed. Uh, and, and you can do this in, while you're doing your samatha practice. What kind of distraction? Well, there's sensations, and there's the different kinds of mental objects. And you can categorize the different kinds of sensations easily enough. And you can even categorize the different kinds of mental objects easily enough. And you can see the relationships between them. You can see, uh, you can see there's a sensation, and then a mental object arises immediately afterwards, providing the label and identification for that. You know, that, that sound, that was a bird, you know. Uh, <laughs> that feeling, that was my stomach growling, because I want lunch. Uh, you know, you can see it arises immediately, the, the, the feelings of, uh, of, of uh, pleasure, and pleasant and unpleasant. You start examining phenomena, and, and you see that this is this is really what's there. This is really what's going on. It becomes clear, and you start to notice, amongst other things, is wow, it's always changing. None of these things last. You know, it's the the, the sensation comes up, and then the mental object comes up, and then next thing you know, there's another sensation or a different mental object, or you know, it's it's just always passing away, and you start to get more and more deeply in touch with impermanence. And while you're meditating in this way, uh, if it's pointed out to you, you'll notice this self, that a lot of times there's no sense of self. That in many of these conscious experiences, self is not there in in the hearing, there's just the hearing. And in the thinking, there's just the thinking. And there's no thinker doing the thinking that's separate. There's nothing present other than these five aggregates. There is no separate self in any of this. There's just the hearing. And if you look for a hearer, you won't find any. But, And then the other thing you'll notice is the idea of self comes up. And sometimes the feeling of self comes up. You got a pain in the knee, you get a strong feeling of self. And you can start to see, okay, a lot of the time there's no self. Then there's a lot of the times that there is self. But what is this self when it's there? You know, it's, it's an idea of, uh, it's an idea of how is this self going to, uh, what is this self going to say to the meditation teacher and the interview? And you, or you tell a story about your life. Oh, I'm, this, I'm this way because this happened to me. And you know, there's a lot, the self emerges as stories. The self emerges as plans and intentions. The self emerges as feelings. But what comes really clear is that there's not a self that really isn't one of these five aggregates. And that's then you're starting to have a direct experience of. of no, you're starting to at least have a deeper understanding of no self. You know. um, and the same thing with suffering. Again, the Mahasi method, the reason that they like you to have lots of pain is you get this, you, you, the idea of suffering starts to soak in. There's just no way to really get comfortable, no matter how you sit. Of course, if you develop too much samatha, it gets very comfortable and you don't get the benefit of that. But, but the insight into suffering 
comes through understanding the other insights. Because really, the, the essence of the insight into dissatisfactoriness is that everything is empty, self is empty, objects are empty, everything is impermanent, there is nothing to cling to, and to cling to any of these impermanent, empty objects is like grasping a red-hot poker. It can only hurt. And that that realization becomes really strong and clear. And that's, that's how that insight comes about. Um, so you can see how you can develop insight while practicing samatha. But it, it's really a benefit to have somebody pointing it out as you go along. And, uh, you know, basically the practice provides all of the opportunities Everything that happens from the first moment you sit down and put your attention on your nose, there are continuous opportunities to see things as they really are, because, of course, what's happening is what really is. But uh, it it helps a lot to have somebody point it out. You know, and as, as my friend Daniel said yesterday, that, well, I could have somebody sit down focus their attention on their breath, and sooner or later all of the insights would arise and they would become enlightened. And I said, yes, but do you tell them that they might have to sit there for several lifetimes? So, it's, it's about speeding it up through it being pointed out and, and knowing what to look for. And of course you can't rush it too, because our mind wants to understand things intellectually, and this has to go beyond the intellectual. And, you know, there is a risk to me telling you this much. Because by telling you as much as I do, and this would be the argument of, the, of some of the meditation teachers, is you tell people this much, and then their intellectual mind will think they have understanding and think they have insight, and that will actually become an obstacle to them gaining true insight. And I, I, I see and agree that that's true, but I can only warn you because I believe that if you know what you're looking for, it's easier to find it. You know, If I send you out there in the dark and say there's something really nice in the sand at the end of the driveway, you ought to go find it. You know, If I at least tell you how big it is or, or how, you know, that helps. So. I did get around to talking about uh, more about non-self and the methods for uh, identifying it, although in a sense I really have. I've, I've been actually talking about that right now. But I didn't forget your request, uh, your question from last night, Scott, and uh, I, I, will, I do want to address that. Um, There were some other related things to what I've already talked about, I believe. And you may have other questions that have come up. I'll turn the floor over to questions here. I just wanted to say that it's wonderful, wonderful teaching. I'm really grateful and thank you. You're welcome. Put it to good use. Excellent teaching. Great. (laughs) Joyce? We went to see Tanasaro 
weekly, um, once a month, and I think he's coming out of Thai forest tradition. And usually before, uh, to start guided meditation, he will have us do body scanning, so you find your abs in different places and before you might settle down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that usually takes at least an hour mm-hmm. to do that before you, you kind of, well, that's kind of the end of the guided meditation. Was that the drive of Hasana you were talking about, or is it more of directing your attention to different points? It's, uh, no, it's not really, that's, that isn't really, um, that is a practice of observing sensations that will, that has a potential to lead to insight. So it is a kind of insight practice. But uh, it sounds to me like he's using it primarily uh, as a tool for developing your mindful awareness and preparing you to sit afterwards. I like to say, uh, what I'm really trying to do is to um, clarify the relationship between these things. I think there's too much separation in the way they're perceived. Oh, this is Vipassana, and it's not quite the same thing as, as Samatha. So, almost any meditation practice, in a sense, is Vipassana. If, if you have some idea of how to use it to, uh, to experience insight into impermanence, you can't look at your mind in any way or at your body and sensations in any way without the potential for insight being there. And so, uh, I'd have to... That particular practice, well, yes, that's an, that is an insight practice, but I don't think in this instance he's using it specifically as such, but it could give rise to insight, an insight. So, you want to ask him <laughs> whether he regards it as primarily as well, a... I didn't know how to ask before. What's that? I didn't know how to ask before. Yeah, it says, uh, yeah, he's, he is a, a good teacher to ask these kinds of questions too. In uh, the book that was recently, uh, that I recently finished by Richard Shankman, he interviews Ajahn Jeff there and, uh, about some of these questions. He asks him very directly some of the questions about uh, the relationship between Vipassana and Samatha. And so, uh, did you say, you, no, you have the other book, but... Uh, oh, the Two Spiritual Friends book? Yeah, you have the Two Spiritual yes, Friends book. But, um, yes, especially since you see Ajahn Jeff, you know, and especially, well, in any case, I would say, get the book Samadhi by Richard Shankman. But since you see Ajahn Jeff regularly, and you would like to ask him questions about this, if you get that book and read it, and his interview, and then and then ask him the questions, and you'll get some really, I think you'll get some really good and useful answers. How do you say his last name? S-H-A-N-K-M-A-N. The name of the book is called Samadhi? Samadhi, yeah. It has, uh, there's some words that come before and some words that come after, but if you go to Amazon and put Samadhi Shankman, you'll get it. Why would he put Samadhi Richard? You're good. <laughs> um, other questions about what I've talked about tonight? Um, 
make a comment that I think you just gave us excellent explanation and the teaching. I think you answer all the problem, all the question for it. <laughs> That's why nobody has any questions. Huh? Okay, well. It's really wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have kind of a question slash uh, suggestion. I, uh, I've just been very, uh, very, um, very interested in everything you've had to say, and also very unnerved that many of the books that I've read may have not been, uh, you may have been leading me down the wrong, the wrong path, and I don't want to read anymore um, uh, if it's not the right book, and so I was going to email you for a, a, a reading list, and thought that maybe it would be a good idea, probably everybody would like that uh, reading list. Um, well, I, I keep getting uh, uh, more and more requests for a reading list, so I really need to put one together. Um, the reason that uh, it isn't really easy to do is because uh, I have a lot of opinions about all these different books, and <laughs> I either make a really long list and don't give you the opinions, or I, I give you a shorter list and tell you what I think are the pros and the cons of specifically each one. Uh, but either, either way, I do appreciate that that's something that it would be very useful for people. I will say, though, that there are some books that uh, may lead you down the wrong path, but, uh, and I don't know which specific books you've read, but I'd say more likely most of them are giving you a limited perspective rather than necessarily leading you down the wrong path. They're, they're taking you on one course and... and, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's a limited perspective, and and uh, they may be treating it in such a way that it uh, uh, it it closes uh, closes off other things. So. One of the things is that there there are so many different ways to approach meditation, and uh, they all seem to work to a greater or lesser degree. It's just the greater or lesser degree part that uh, I think that is what's really important. Best to find the ones that work the best and then best to understand them in a way so that you can relate the the method to your own personality and inclinations. Okay. that seems like I know you had questions that I can't remember That's yours. Too long. Okay. <laughs> so maybe yeah, maybe there'll be time for them tomorrow, along with uh, some of the methodology of pursuing the uh, 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 insight into selflessness. So tomorrow, if I come and say, "Okay, what are we going to talk about?" Make sure you remind me of those things. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, we still have a little bit of time left, so if you'd like to stretch and go to the washroom, and then we'll sit until uh, 9 o'clock. <laughs>